0: But it's great to have you with us this morning. We're going to continue talking about a topic that David brought up yesterday. And I'm going to grab this, uh, the slides over here so I can... I want to talk about who is Jesus. He posed the question, and of course, it got everybody's minds thinking. Going, okay, well, who is Jesus, and, and what do we do with that question? And last week, we listened to some of what AI was able to tell us about who Jesus is from the input of all the information out there on the internet, as it gathered that information and and put it together in in a summary form. Now, some of the definitions were great. Some of them were a little bit weak. But of course, any attempt to define who Jesus is is probably gonna be incomplete, correct? Think about it. Any attempt to kind of define who Jesus is is gonna be incomplete. Even the Bible admits that it couldn't contain everything that Jesus did. In John 21, 25, John said, there are many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain all the books that would be written. So even the Bible couldn't contain all of the things that Jesus did. And that's not even talking about all the things that he said and just trying to describe who he was as a person. So I suppose if we're going to wrestle with this topic of who is Jesus, we kind of first have to come to peace with the reality that we cannot fully comprehend who Jesus is. Can we be okay with that? We cannot fully comprehend who Jesus is. The finite can only grasp the infinite as much as the infinite is willing to reveal. And our brains just don't understand all that there is to know about God. So again, whatever definition we try to compile about who Jesus is will lack in some way, shape, or form. However, each definition should, if it's compiled in a true and accurate manner, should still be helpful to give us a glimpse into who Jesus is. For instance, if I confess to you this morning, this will be no shocker, that I'm a technology nerd, what does that tell you about me? this is fair game I'm, just, I'm opening myself up take shots what is it what does that mean I like technology that's like the most basic definition what are you probably gonna find in my house what type of technology might I have computers what else a ring doorbell I don't have that but I have a lot of other okay what other types of things like that though smart door handle with a key code got one of those yeah what else what's that a Roomba yeah yeah I love my wife and I bought her a Roomba and it like (laughs) cleans the house for and then it empties itself it's like yes we we call it sunny Um, those of you that understand iRobot get that so um, what else might I have in my house phones yeah smart switches what Star Star Trek movies I do have some of the Star Trek movies and I have the Star Wars movies and I have yes yeah absolutely Remote control blinds, yes, I do. I admit it, I, have re- I can speak to my house and it closes the blinds and it turns on the lights and all that kind of fun stuff. And it's always listening. And it is always listening. <laughs> I figure if somebody at Google or Amazon has nothing better to do than listen to me, God bless them, I really feel sorry for them, but. So yeah, so those are some of the things that you can probably assume about me or guess about me because I told you I'm a technology nerd. Um, but does that tell you everything about me? What things doesn't it tell you about me? Kind of food you like. Kind of food. You figured you'd bring up food, because that's another thing about me that you could probably throw out here today, right? Mike likes food. Right, what kind of food I like? What else? Your character. My character, correct. What else? Your family. My family. Your faith. My faith. where I live. Exactly. There's a lot of details that aren't there, but what I told you about me being a technology nerd is still in fact part of who I am. And it gives you a glimpse into a little bit about me. So you kind of understand the way I think and what what I think is cool and and those types of things. So when we're looking at Jesus, any picture that we take, any summary we come up with is going to give us a glimpse, but we shouldn't expect it's gonna give us everything about Jesus, but it will help us understand him. Um, So that's if we compile a definition of Jesus in a true and accurate manner. And while AI can concatenate information, it can pull information from endless sources, AI in and of itself is not a source, is it? It needs sources to work. Now, one of the fascinating conclusions of AI last week was this. If you're interested in learning more about Jesus, there are many resources available to you. You can read the Bible, talk to a Christian, uh, friend or family member, or attend a church service. So thank you, Google Bard, for that advice. And, and what, what Bard is saying is it's not the source of this information. It can just pull together what has been put out there. And if you want to know more about Jesus, you really have to go to a source. And I think the best source that we have available is what? The Bible, right? So that's where we're going to spend some time this morning. We're going to do some from the best source possible. But the challenge is this how do you pick a passage to define Jesus? Right? So imagine you're me. (sighs) Maybe you shouldn't do that. It's Sunday morning. (coughs) But imagine you're you're in a, a pastoral position or you're teaching a conference and somebody says, I want you to tell me who is Jesus. How do you pick a passage? Right? Because you could start in Genesis, right? You probably could go from there. You, you, could, you could start in Revelation 22, and you could talk about Jesus. The entire Bible is about the Messiah, the need for a Messiah, the story of the Messiah, and the ultimate result of what Messiah came to do. It all points to Jesus. So how do you, you just start in Genesis and go through Revelation, and when you're done, you've given an accurate picture of Jesus as far as we can know. How do you pick a passage? So where do you start when you want to answer the question, who is Jesus? Now, if you wanted to know more about me, other than that I'm a nerd, you could ask me. And pretty much I'm going to tell you. But let's say I'm not here. Maybe I'm up in the Adirondacks, forgetting all people and all technology, and just spending time uh, enjoying God's creation, and you really wanted to know more about me, Who? or what might you go to to find out more about me? Well, I'm not here, I'm up in the mountains. So where else might you go? Your mom. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mom, raise your hand. Yeah, 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 she's right there. Okay, so my mom's one, yeah, who else? Laura, Laura. oh yeah. My employees, yeah, good call. (laughs) Different side of me probably, right? My friends, I don't have any friends, so we'll stick with family, right? Right? Who else? Your church family. Your church family. Absolutely. Anybody else? The boys. The boys. Yeah. Oh yeah. They. I'm sure they have a totally tainted perspective of me as a dad, uh, and I probably earned every bit of it. If you want to know about someone who's not physically with you, one of the I think best places to get valid information is with those that are closest or were closest to that person. And we understand that. We see that in police investigations. We understand that when we get to the situation of funerals. Um, Unfortunately, I've had to to share the messages at funerals. And the first thing I want to know is about the person who's no longer on this earth. And I'm going to talk to the family members that were the closest to find out about them. Um, So one of my favorite passages to learn about Jesus comes from someone who is very close to him. Matter of fact, he spent a lot of time with Jesus on this earth and was even considered one of Jesus' favorites. Did you know Jesus had favorites? He did. He did. His nickname was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Could you imagine being one of the other 11? Doesn't Jesus love me too? Well, yeah, he loved them all, but that was the title given to this one particular disciple. And what was his name? John, that's right. I'd call that a pretty close relationship. If you're known as the one that Jesus loves, that's a pretty close relationship. So I want to know, what does someone as close to Jesus as John have to say to describe Jesus to other people? Well, he did this in his gospel, the gospel of John. And chapter 1 is by far one of my most favorite scriptures in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles or if you have an app, Tap on over or turn to John chapter 1. Hey, James, I'm feeding back just a a tiny bit. I'm feeding back. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is where I want to focus. I'll put them up on the screen, but hopefully you have your Bibles or your app. You can turn there as well. And I'll be reading from the CSB this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing that was created that has been created. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. But the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Now, indeed, We have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. We live in a culture that is increasingly spiritual and yet hesitant to commit to saying that there's anything such as absolute truth. To many in modern society, Jesus was simply a philosopher. Others view him as a good man with important things to say. Still others, Jesus was just another prophet who came to point us to God. And this is why I believe the first words of the Gospel of John are so vitally important. They answer the question, I think very clearly, of who is Jesus and why did he come to earth. So let's start right in verse 1. John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. How many of you are familiar with that verse? That's an amazing verse. You know, if you're looking for something to put on your coffee mug, that's one of them. If you're looking for that, you know, that plaque for your wall, that's, that's one of them. This is one of the most loaded verses I think that, that exists I mean, they all are loaded. I know, but this is to me, this is one of those powerful ones. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, when you hear the phrase, in the beginning, where does your mind travel? Genesis, right? Good. You guys are awesome. We're going to go right to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. John begins his gospel by connecting us to the beginning. By connecting us back to Genesis chapter 1. The beginning of the Messiah can be understood by looking at the beginning of the creation of this world. See, I told you you could start in Genesis chapter 1 and talk about Jesus. John's going to point us right there. Now, if you were Jews living at the time of Jesus, you you would have the Torah and the prophets as your scriptures. You didn't have all of the Old Testament that we know of, and you didn't have any of the New Testament. So when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, or the Gospels talk about the law and the prophets, that's the books that they had, the scrolls that they had, were the the law and the prophets, the Torah being the first five books, and then the the prophets that follow after that. Um, We actually don't consider Joshua part of the prophets, but they did. Um, So it picks up from there. And if you were familiar at all with Jewish ways, you would have been indoctrinated in the book of Genesis, the beginnings, because Genesis sets up the foundation for everything else that God is doing. By, By the book of Genesis, time is ordered. The people are ordered. Creation is ordered. Everything starts at the beginning in Genesis. It's an amazing book. And you would be very familiar with that phrase. So when John starts out his gospel and he says, in the beginning, he's immediately taking everybody back to Genesis 1. But if you know Genesis 1, you're thinking, in the beginning, God, right? That's the next word. You know that. You've read the verse. In the beginning, uh, God. That's Genesis chapter 1. John strays from that a little bit and says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, you were tracking within the beginning, you immediately went to Genesis, and all of a sudden he's like, wait a minute, he didn't put God in there, he said something different. He's making some points here, and I want to put both verses up on the screen so you can see the difference. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. And all things created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So you have in the beginning, you have the creation of the heavens and the earth, or all things being created, all things uh, being in the second half of the last part of John 1, 1-3. And then in the middle, you have God and the Word and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. So you have the same elements of the Genesis narrative brought out by John, but he's making some substitutions here. He's trying to draw our attention to the fact that when you put these together, you realize that God and Jesus are one. You have to be careful how you say that, don't you? You can say God and Jesus are the same, but they're not, they're one. They're not the same. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, So God and Jesus are one. So John is going back to Genesis and saying, when you read in the beginning, God created, you're also reading in the beginning, Jesus created. Because Jesus is God. But that jumps ahead a little bit. Um, John uses some beautiful poetry to help us see this. And I love the way he puts this together. He says, uh, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. You see how he starts with the beginning, comes back to the beginning, he sandwiches in the middle. It's beautiful poetry. Um, I wish we did more with poetry nowadays. I'm not good with that. David's much better with poetry. You can read his blog. He's got some great stuff out there. I'm terrible with poetry and drawing. Um, But in the beginning was the Word, and that Word was with God, and that Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. And then he makes another statement poetically that all things were created through him. That's the positive. And then he goes to that negative and nothing exists that wasn't created apart from him. Not one thing exists that was created. So he uses both a positive and a negative to say the same statement that everything that was created came through Christ. Not one thing exists that wasn't created through him. And this poetry highlights some of the key theological statements about the deity of Jesus that, God unwra- that John unravels in his gospel. So I want to unpack that together. We're going to take a journey through John chapter 1, um, at least for the next two weeks, maybe three weeks, looking at who is Jesus. And we're going to start with in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And this addresses the eternal nature of Jesus. To say that the Word existed in the beginning is to say that the Word existed... Prior to all of creation. And the word is the term that John uses for Jesus. If you read John chapter 1, you'll notice that the name Jesus doesn't actually show up in there. He uses a phrase that nobody else uses, the word, to refer to Jesus. So when he says that the word existed in the beginning, it's to declare that he existed prior to all of creation. He was not a created being like Adam and Eve. The word was there in the beginning. And this addresses and demonstrates the eternal nature of Jesus. He goes on to make more statements about this in this first chapter. In verse 15, John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this is the one whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. There's a puzzle for you, right? So John is talking to his disciples. and He says, there's somebody coming after me. Because John was here to prepare the way for the Messiah. He said, There's somebody that's coming after me that's more important than me because he existed before I did. Now, I've read the Gospels. Who was born first, John or Jesus? John. So, even in John's statement, he's declaring that Christ existed before his physical birth, he is eternal in nature. And then John adds a third reference. Um, in, in verse 10 of John chapter 1, he says that the world was created through him. And then in John 1, 3, we read that... Um, oops, I guess I went ahead of myself. In 1, 3, we read that all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And this is the third time that John lays the foundation declaring that Jesus is eternal. So in his introduction, John lays out this truth that there is someone that he's speaking about in the prologue of his book that existed in the very beginning and is eternal in nature. But who he's going to talk about as the person that he had a relationship with on this earth. Later in John's gospel, he's going to quote it this way. Going to quote um, Jesus actually this way. Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John's going to continue to take these themes from chapter 1 and repeat them throughout the Gospel of John and quote Jesus where appropriate because this is where he is getting his doctrine from us, from what Jesus said and what the Holy Spirit has revealed to him. He said, The Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world existed. He existed before creation, so he was not created. All things that were created in the beginning were created through him. And though he was physically born after John the Baptist, he existed before John the Baptist. So we have in Jesus his eternal nature, that he was eternal. This is significant because there are many religions that do not believe that. They believe Jesus was just a good man, a good prophet. He was a moralist who came to teach good teachings to the world around him but deny the fact that he was in any way, shape, and form existed beyond his years, 30-whatever years on this earth. John goes on to say, not only was in the beginning was the word, but then he goes to his next phrase, which is, and the word was with God. Jesus is part of the Trinity. It declares that he exists at the same time as another, what would you call it? person. Another entity called God. It's impossible for us as finite human beings to fully understand an infinite God. We've covered that a little bit. The Bible presents God as one God, but then speaks of three persons in that Godhead. The Father, the Son, and who's the third one? The Holy Spirit, right? Now, how these two truths harmonize can make your head explode because we don't have anything quite like that in our world. We have something close. God actually used marriage to help us try to understand that relationship. When he says that two people get married and the two become one, but even that is an imperfect reflection and a a partial image Of what the Godhead is. It's impossible for us to totally understand an undefinable God. Um, However, I believe that the scriptures are very clear in their teaching, even in the Gospel of John, that there are three persons in the Godhead of the Bible. There's one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet we find God has three, there's three different persons of God that appear at different times in different ways, and sometimes at the same time. Um, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. John places the word with God in the beginning. Now, that accounts for two of the three persons of the Trinity, right? However, if you read Genesis 1, 1 through 3, many scholars also find the third part of the Trinity in here. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And who was there? The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So we have God creating and the Spirit of God hovering over the earth. John also then places Jesus back there at the creation and says that Jesus was there with the Father at that time. So we have three distinct personalities of the Trinity. Notice I didn't say that we have three different expressions or three different manifestations of God? Because there is a belief called modalism. Have you heard of it before? Modalism is a belief that says that there is one God who appears in different forms at different times. So predominantly in the Old Testament, God appeared as Yahweh. And predominantly in the gospel, God then appears as the Son, same God just appearing in a different way. And then after the crucifixion and the resurrection, God then appears as the Holy Spirit. And it's called modalism. And it basically is saying that there's just one God, not three different distinct persons. There's no Trinity. God just changes his form and takes on different roles as that one God. It's called modalism. Uh, we would call that a heresy according to scriptures because the scriptures don't teach that. But I want you to be aware of that. And when you start to try to understand things apart from the whole context of Scripture, you can come up with beliefs like modalism. Um, so again, I think one of the best ways we can... And we're going to look at a little bit more about this, this Trinity concept. Um, it would take a month of sermons to even try to bridge the whole concept of the Trinity. So you're getting kind of cliff notes here from the Gospel of John. I want to, want to be clear on that. Um, but I think one of the ways that we can look at it is that, that God exists in... That, that there is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son and the Spirit. And while they all might have different roles or functions in the Godhead, they all share the same divine essence or the same being, um, is how theologians often put it. And we're like, okay, but that's a lot to wrap your head around. Yes, we don't have a category in our language that talks about this. So we end up using terms that we have from our scriptures to try to comprehend and put together something that is just uh, honestly a little bit beyond us. Um, Jesus also spoke about being separate from the Father, but connected to the Father. So showing that they are one, but yet that they are unique. Um, In John 16, 28, Jesus said, I came from the Father and have come into the world. And again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So he, he is saying that he is one with the Father, which he says also later on. But then he says, I came from the Father and I'm going to return to the Father. He doesn't say that he becomes the Father or that he came as the Son and, and there's no longer a Father and he's going to go back to becoming the Father. He's going back to that person. We also see in John 15, 26, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. So in this passage, we see that the Father is going to send the Son, uh, going to send the Spirit, excuse me, once the Son returns to the Father. So you have all three parts of the Godhead, all three persons of the Godhead mentioned by Jesus to his disciples. Um, Jesus, I think, just explains that Godhead or Trinity quite plainly to his disciples. If you're still not convinced, we looked at a couple weeks ago the, the, the great commission, what we call would be the everyday Commission. Uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And Jesus says this Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of whom? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and remember I am with you always to the ends of the age. Um, To diminish the Trinity and to try to explain it away because we can't fully comprehend it is not right. It's not a biblically accurate model. It's not what Jesus taught. You look at the Gospels when Jesus was baptized. When Jesus went under the water, the Spirit descended like a dove, and the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And you have the Son and the Spirit and the Father all at the same time in one place. All throughout Scripture, even in the Old Testament, all the way through Revelation, we see all three parts of the Godhead. Jesus was part of the Trinity, and that's something that John wants us to really get a hold of. So the word in the beginning was the Word. He's eternal. And the Word was with God, part of the Trinity, and the Word was God. Jesus is deity. He's not a lesser part of the Trinity. He's not a lesser God. Um, when you come to this phrase, and the Word was God, it's not saying that the, that the Word was God transformed into the Word, like modalism said, but that the Word was just as much God as the Father. There He's just as much um, deity as the Spirit and as the Father. Whatever could be said about the nature of the Father could be said about the Son or the Word. Now, there's many false religions uh, and false teachers that will change and distort one verse here and there to try to make their own teachings make sense and to discredit the person of Jesus Christ, to make him out to not be deity, to not be God, to not be equal equal with God. Um, one of those happens to be um, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe um, God is, and I'm quoting you from Wikipedia, Jehovah's Witnesses believe God is the creator and supreme being, but Witnesses reject the Trinity doctrine, which they consider unscriptural. They view God as the Father, an invisible spirit person, separate from the Son, Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is described as God's active force rather than the third part of the Trinity. And later on, um, if you go to the Jehovah's Witness website and you ask them uh, what they believe, you'll find out that they believe they follow the teachings and examples of Jesus and honor him as Savior and Son of God. Thus, they say they are Christians. However, they have learned that the, from the Bible that Jesus is not Almighty God. And they say that there is no scriptural basis for the Trinity doctrine. That's right from the jehovah'switness.org website, jw.org website. How do they come to a conclusion when you read a passage like John 1.1? that Jesus is not God. I mean, John couldn't say it any clearer. Well, one of the things that they do is they change the scriptures just a little tiny bit, which is interesting, I think, because when you go back to Genesis chapter 3, do you remember the temptation with the serpent? Reread that and figure out how the serpent just twisted the words just a tiny little bit to make them sound like they were gods, but they weren't. Let me share with you what they say here. They don't say they read, in the beginning was the Word. They have their own version of the Bible, by the way. And they read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Now, the phrase for God there is used all throughout chapter 1 and all throughout the book of John. And nowhere else in the book of John do they add the word a. Just that one spot. And there's no reason for it other than they need to have their doctrine proved. They actually, by the way, recently had a scholarly poll come out, and they admitted that the correct translation of this is not a God. The Jehovah's Witnesses actually admitted that, but they still hold to the doctrine that Jesus was not God. But this was the phrase that they used for it. So what difference does that one little word make? I'm gonna read for you from uh, one of my commentaries. When Jehovah's Witnesses meet to discuss their religion, they pick up a translation of scripture called the New World Translation. If you open that book, turn to the Gospel of John, found verse one, and looked at the last phrase you would read, and the word was a God. Does that small change matter? Does a simple little monosyllable make any difference? By adding that little word a, they're making a statement that Jesus is something less than fully God. He may be a God in some sense, he may be one of many gods, but he is not the true God. From the beginning of his gospel, John argues that Christ is not one of many gods, but is himself God. And John MacArthur writes, confusion about the deity of Christ is inexcusable because the biblical teaching regarding it is clear and unmistakable. Jesus Christ is the preexistent word who enjoys full face-to-face communion and divine life with the Father and is himself God. I think it's pretty straightforward. But there are people who will say otherwise. Why do we need to know who Jesus is? It's so important that we understand from the source, from the scriptures, who Jesus is, because there are so many that will try to get us to believe something other than what the scriptures teach about God. And they'll make it sound good. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And you're like, yeah, that sounds about right. But it's not. But it's not. I think one of the most blatant statements about Jesus' deity came from Jesus himself in John chapter 10, verse 30. "I and the Father are one." Right? It's pretty straight out there. So through this poetry, we've seen that Jesus is God and that He's part of the Trinity, and that He is eternal. He is deity. He is not just a God. He is not just a good man. He is deity. He is God. Any teaching that contradicts these truths is not biblical. and needs to be tossed aside. Our goal is a true and accurate understanding of who Jesus is, and that means we must be consistent with our interpretation of Scripture, especially in context with the rest of Scripture. I think John summarizes it well in one eighteen. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, has revealed him. Okay, in case you didn't like the A-God earlier, how how do you take this one and kind of wash it away? The one and only Son, who is himself God. So these little poems, the poem that John had, started by introducing us to three concepts about Jesus, to understand who he is. First, in the beginning, which says that he is therefore what? Eternal. Was the word, and the word was with God, so he's part of the Trinity. And the word was God, which means he is God, he is deity, right? I get that. But I struggle with verse 14, in John chapter 1 now. Because my brain is just wrapped around this whole idea that Jesus is eternal and that he's part of the Godhead and that he existed before all of creation and he'll exist to the end. And then I read chapter 1, verse 14, and my head wants to explode because I don't know what to do with it now. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So yes, Jesus was eternal, and Jesus is eternal, and Jesus is God, and he's part of the Godhead, and yet Jesus was also human. And how do you reconcile somebody being fully God and fully human into one? I mean, John says it pretty clearly. Jesus became flesh and bones, human, and he tabernacled he dwelt among us that word dwelt among us here is the word for tabernacle it's a tent he came and set up a tent how many of you like to go camping how many of you would like to live in a tent forever okay i'm glad to see that no hands were still up there let's see if we have other life goals yeah tents are great for temporary right but nobody wants to live in a tent forever the word became flesh and dwelt among us tented tabernacled among us for a short time this also takes us back to Genesis um, in a couple different ways. We have the tabernacle in, in uh, Exodus that was set up, but in Genesis, after God was done creating all of creation man and woman, what did he do in the garden? He hung out with Adam and Eve. He talked with them. Matter of fact, after they sinned, he went kind of looking for him. Hello, Adam, where are you? As if he didn't know. But he lived among Adam and Eve in the garden. John has taken us back to the Torah on purpose. And we're going to look at this tabernacle concept, Lord willing, a little bit more in a couple weeks. It's too much for this message. But the fact that he became flesh and dwelt among us is taking us again back to Genesis where God existed with mankind. And that relationship was broken when Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent and disobeyed God. And there was distance put between them, each other, and between them and God. And from that time on, there's been this imperfect relationship of God being among them. So God set up the, temple, the tabernacle and sacrifices so that God could be in their midst. And it wasn't until after they fulfilled all of the, the law and the sacrifices that God could actually be in their presence and God's glory shone in the tabernacle. And then later on, they set up a temple in Jerusalem, and that's where God's glory dwelled and his name dwelled. And they had God among them in the city, and then that got destroyed. This time, God shows up in skin. Among them as a human, it's a partial return back to Genesis, but only temporarily. But he became a human. He was not just God among mankind. He took on human form. Um, he was a baby who cried and who had to have his diaper changed. I mean you just don't think of Jesus that way but Somebody had, I shouldn't have used the word but there. Somebody had to change him, right? He was totally dependent upon his mom to feed him. He had to grow up, go to school. Even Jesus went to school, probably different than what you did. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, we read that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God a man that increasing in stature meant he grew up. (laughs) Jesus went through puberty. I mean, you don't want to think of that, but yes, he was a human. He went through everything that we've gone through in our bodies. He had to go through the same changes. He wept at the loss of a loved one. He felt the pain of being betrayed by someone close to him. He was not just fully God, he was also fully human, knowing the struggles of this life, but living in full obedience to the Father. The Apostle Paul explained it this way, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, have this same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity and when he had come as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even the death on a cross jesus took up residency on this earth to do what the father wanted to me that humanity speaks so much of the person of jesus although he was God, did not say, you know what? They're on their own. I'm just going to stay here and enjoy the glory that I have with the Father. Instead, he chose to empty himself of that glory to come to this earth like us, to go through all the things that we go through so that he could do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Satisfy the requirements of God's righteousness. Draw people back to our Father shows me a lot about what matters most to Jesus as a person. Now, this was a temporary dwelling. Jesus says in John 16, 28, I came from the Father, I've come into the world. Um, again, I'm leaving the world, and I'm going back to the Father. So he even acknowledged his disciples that it was temporary. I came from the Father, I'm going back to the Father. Again, I don't know how you explain away the Trinity in that. Um, it's, it's right there. Can anybody tell me any other books that the Apostle John wrote? There's the Gospel of John, right? And what else? First, First, second, and third John, yeah. And what's the other one? I heard it. Revelation. Revelation. Oh, there's Revelation. How many of you love reading Revelation? Yeah, there's always a couple. Love it. It's a great book. It's a hard book to wrap your head around completely, right? But this phrase, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John uses it in 1 John 1. The only other place it shows up in the New Testament is in John's other writing of Revelation. And it shows up, I believe, four times in Revelation. And the last one is in Revelation chapter 21. And it points to a day when God will be among men permanently, which is really cool. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. We're talking about being physically there. You can't wipe away the tears from somebody's eyes unless you're there among them. We're talking about being physically there among humans again. The whole Godhead. I told you we could go all the way to Revelation and talk about Jesus. We did. We covered Genesis to Revelation in a nutshell through the Gospel of John. So as we wrap up our thoughts on who is Jesus, the person of Jesus, I want to bring up the words that John said and make these, John made these statements. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Those are four statements he made about the word, about Jesus, about who Jesus is. And what he was saying in all of that is Jesus is eternal and he's part of the Trinity and he is God and he was human all at the same time. And as God and as human, he's able to accomplish the will of the Father without issue. He's eternal, and death cannot stop him. He's part of the Trinity. And as as a human, he understands what we go through, the joys, the sorrows, the triumphs, the temptations. He even gave us an example to live by. There were some commercials that came out a while ago that talked about Jesus, and their tagline was, He gets us. It's a beautiful tagline. Jesus does get us because he lived in a body on this earth. So who is Jesus? I believe the scriptures are clear that Jesus is both God and man, that he's a member of the Trinity, that he existed before time and will exist and rule for all of eternity. As both God and man, he places himself as both creator of the world and savior of the world. He also then, is the perfect mediator for the world for there is one god and one mediator between god and mankind the man christ jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all A testimony at the proper time there is one god though both jesus and the father are god and jesus became human to accomplish the work of god in redeeming man humans for relationship with god what a beautiful picture of the person of Jesus. What it doesn't answer, and what Lord willing will look at next week, is the purpose of Jesus. We can look at the person of Jesus, but what was his purpose? And John also gives us a beautiful picture of that, I believe, as well. So in preparation for next week, I encourage you to read the whole Gospel of John at least 30 times, and uh, in particular, focus on chapter one. And Lord willing, will pick up there again. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you have chosen through your word to reveal to us um, more than we can even comprehend about who you are, about who Jesus is, about who the Spirit is. Father, we know that we cannot fully comprehend all of who you are, but we pray that our hearts and our minds would be enlightened to know more about you. That as we look at these pictures of, of who Jesus is, these snapshots and these little glimpses, that each little piece would make up a bigger picture of understanding about our amazing Savior. I thank you for Jesus. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to this earth. Jesus, thank you for being willing to give up your glory to come to earth to take on our shame, to receive your glory back from the Father. Father, help us to be true to your word, to shape our understanding of who you are and who Jesus is and who the Spirit is from what you've told us, not from what we find from random books or even random searches, but that all that we come up with will come from you and will bring you honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.